So 2013, I was training for my third Ironman. I was doing Ironman Arizona. And I was, you know, I was doing like a, a lot of volume. And so obviously like I was eating more calories and I just started to like, no, just, I started just like look at my diet a little bit more. And I just noticed like, wow, like my diet is like super meat heavy, you know? And, and I was just like, I just don't know if this is like the healthiest thing for me to be eating. And uh, at the time, I had had bought uh, Rich Roll's book, Finding Ultra, because I was like really interested in in doing Ultraman. I would, I'd wanted to do that race, and so that's why I bought the book. And that book like totally like blew my mind because you know he talked about going plant based and like getting a lot of energy, and then all of a sudden he's doing Ultraman, and like that book blew my mind because up until that point, you know, just like everyone else, like thought I needed meat for protein and, you know, cow's milk for calcium and like, and I just never thought that you could be healthy, like without those things, especially not being an athlete. And then just see this guy who's doing like ultra distance, you know, triathlons, like on a plant-based diet, I was like super intrigued, you know? So I started like looking into it more. Welcome to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. I'm Jess, your host, and along with my co-host, BJ, we are waking up and shaking up the world of endurance sports. We are committed to going under the surface chatter and allow our guests the space to safely speak their truth with an intention to reveal that we are more similar than we are different and that no one ever needs to feel alone again. We believe that shining a light on our interconnectedness and the power of vulnerability that our guests are so impeccable at expressing will lead to a better world, which is our overarching mission. Hey, listen, we love finish lines. We love data and information. We crave the workouts that make us question our survival. But when it's all said and done, if we're not going deep enough and developing the skills to look at our inner house square in the eye, we're never going to reach our highest potential as athletes. Today, we are here with vegan ultra-endurance athlete, Scott Reuter, and he has got one of those powerful stories that must be shared far and wide. Scott grew up as a swimmer and basketball player in Tucson, Arizona, and went on to college at the University of Arizona. He's completed multiple Ironman and half Ironman distance triathlons, and as many endurance athletes do, discovered the ultra-endurance world as a means to push the boundaries even more. He placed sixth overall at the 2019 Ultra 520K in Canada, claiming the fifth fastest swim in the history of the event. Scott turned vegan in January of 2014 and has uncovered a purpose in animal rights and is active with the organization Anonymous for the Voiceless. He's been living sober since September 1st, 2019, and his driving passion is to make this world a better place for animals and to assist those suffering with alcohol addiction to reach a life of sobriety. As a longtime Yogi Triathlete follower, I'm sure Scott is well aware that we are so diving into all that goodness and everything about the intensity of his life experience that created the catalyst for his change. Scott, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super stoked. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and you've got your 520 hat on. Yeah, I got to represent. I'm kind of I'm kind of interested in what the 520 is. Tell us what what it is. Yeah, so it's a three-day event, and it starts off, day one is a 10K swim and 92-mile bike ride, and then day two is a 172-mile bike ride, and then day three is a double marathon, 52-mile run. Nice. Yeah. yeah, okay, so Ultraman, but not the Ultraman, quote-unquote, yeah. brand? Yeah, they rebranded um, 
a while ago. I don't know what happened, but yeah, it became Ultra 520K. And it's, it's crazy. They actually have uh, Ultraman Canada and then Ultra 520K Canada the weekend after. And there was two athletes that attempted the double doing back-to-back weekends of Ultraman, basically. Do we know what happened with those athletes? <laughs> they, they, <laughs> are they still on the they're, course? They're still alive. Yeah, <laughs> they're yeah, still yeah. alive? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Does, that, uh, does that intrigue you? No, definitely no, not. not. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about like those those hard lines that like athletes have, right? Like, yeah. oh, are you interested? No, absolutely not. Yeah, but yeah. I think we got to be careful about those things because I did say that I was never, ever going to do a triathlon ever. Remember? I do remember that. <laughs> I think I said it to you. You did. And well, and anyway. a year later, you were doing your first sprint. Yep, yeah. I was. I know. <laughs> never and said I was never. Like, yeah. And then I'm like, okay, that's good. And then you're like, I can do that faster. I can, <laughs> yeah. I can do it. And it, what, longer? Wait, I can get into a groove? Mm-hmm. I don't know. My heart doesn't have to blow up? Like, I can do it. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's how we all ended up here to some degree. So let's, uh, let's, let's just dive right in. Let's dive right into um, your relationship with alcohol and um, how that was affecting your life and, or your athletics and really the wake-up call that uh, brought you towards the light. Yeah, so I, I didn't start drinking until college. So in high school, like I was at basketball player, super focused on, on basketball. I wanted to play college basketball. And so I had a, uh, a knee injury my senior year, which basically took me out for my entire senior se- senior season. And after that, I kind of got a little bit lost, you know, because I'd, I'd been an athlete my whole life. And, you know, I, I ended up applying at uh, University of Arizona and did the whole, you know, fraternity thing. And, you know, literally went from like zero to a hundred, you know, like went from not drinking to being in a fraternity, doing keg stands and, and all that. So college was, you know, it was basically just like all about partying and doing your best to, you know, get the schoolwork done so you could keep partying. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so, you know, that went on through college. And then, you know, after college, moved out to Newport Beach, a bunch of my college buddies all moved out there. And then same thing. It was just like basically college. It just you know continued uh, in Newport, and so you know the drinking continued. And it was I never really really saw it as a problem because I was one for one. I was just doing what everyone else was doing, and also like there was other aspects of my life that were like you know like I had a good job, and you know like I wasn't like drinking every day. I was like just drinking on the weekends and stuff like that, and. And it got kind of bad. Where it got to the point where, like, almost every weekend, like, I wasn't drinking during the week, but I was drinking on the weekends. And the weekends would be basically be me just like going out all weekend and just like going on like serious benders. And so that went until about 2009, where I, you know, actually found triathlon uh, because I gotten really unhealthy and gained a bunch of weight. I was like 50 pounds heavier than I am right now. And I just wanted to like, start to get healthier, lose some weight. Wasn't really like thinking about trying to like, you know, drink less or whatever. I just wanted to overall just be like healthier. So I started doing triathlon, got really hooked in that and started losing weight, you know, started doing that whole deal, started doing Ironmans and stuff. But I was kind of like playing this balance of like, you know, you know, being this athlete, but also like still trying to like you know, manage my drinking and go out and be a social drinker. And there were just like so many times that I would go out just like trying just to have a couple of drinks. 
and then end up just like going way overboard and being like at a late night party at 6 a.m. just like out of my mind on on drugs and alcohol. So, so, and it was just hard for me to like actually admit that I had a problem because, you know, like here I am like doing Ironmans, you know, and like, but then there's like this other thing where like, you know, I'm struggling with this, with this drinking thing, but it just like, I couldn't admit that I like, I, I had a problem. And so that cycle kind of just continued. And it was, there were so many times where I'd like, you know, I, I was, when I was training for Ironman, like I was super focused on Ironman, but also like, you know, I'd go and I'd do my like hundred mile ride on a Saturday and then I'd go out, drink, and then sometimes be up to like three, four in the morning and then wake and then sleep like <laughs> three or four hours and then wake up the next day and then like run like 20 miles. And like, my friends were like, how do you do that? And it's like, it's not like I did that on purpose. It's not like I'm like going out to like try to see how far I could push my myself, like <laughs> going out partying and then like running the next day. It was just like, I couldn't control the drinking, but I still had to get the work done. And I was so focused mm-hmm. on, you know, training for the Ironman that I was, I was balanced. And it was just like this crazy, like double life that I was, I was leading. And so, so then I signed up for the ultra 520 K and I had wanted, wanted to do that race for a really long time. And, and that's when I started working with Mary and we trained for about a year. And during that training, it was, the training was so crazy that like I drinking really took a backseat during that time period. And I did the race and felt amazing. Like after that race, it was like, I felt like I was like a superhuman, like I could literally do anything and like in, and even control my drinking. I, I thought, okay, like now I can do this. I should be able to do this. Right. And it's like a month after the race, I went out with my friends, we were drinking, you know, stayed out super late. We're at this club, like just, you know, slamming vodkas. And then next thing I know, it's like 6.30 AM and I'm like, just waking up out of a blackout, had no phone in my pocket. And I was five miles from home, which like they thought it was kind of funny because like I'm a triathlete and like a five mile <laughs> run is not bad, but like a five mile walk home after not knowing where you, where you were was just like insane. So on that walk home, I basically was just like, you know, and I realized now like I was having a conversation with God, like I just can't do this anymore. This like if I keep drinking, like something's bad is going to happen either like, I, I don't know, like I could die is basically like the conversation that I had. And so that's when I reached out to a buddy that had been sober for a long time. He's like, hey, let's go to this meeting. And then that's how this whole sobriety thing happened. So so what did you, ha- I'm assuming you had like this kind of inner knowing, like this is no bueno, like this is, this is no good. Even as you were still really functional, good job training. Like, did you have that kind of inner knowing? Um, I'm thinking about our conversation with Nicole <laughs> DeBoom and how she was talking about like, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't drinking at seven in the morning, but when she would drink, she was, she was drinking to bl- like, she was, she was black, would There's go, purpose. she would black mm-hmm, out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't, I don't think it was her intention, but it, that's where it would always lead. Mm-hmm. It would always lead to a blackout. But there was this part of her that always knew like, this has got to, this has got to go. This is not good. Yeah. And so my question is, if you had that knowing but you haven't changed the behavior yet. Was there guilt? Like when you would 
kind of wake up and then you'd be in the hangover phase or you'd be out on that 20 mile run. Were you battling with like this self guilt? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I was just like, this is not how I want my life to be. You know, like I don't want to feel this terrible. Cause I mean, obviously like hangovers get worse as you get older. <laughs> and so, um, and it was just like, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, it was such a struggle um, because I felt like, I felt like I could figure this out, you know, like I felt like at some point I would crack the code, you know, and I would figure out how to like moderate my drinking and, and drink like a normal person. And the weird thing was, is like, I did have nights where I, I could, I had like a couple beers and then would go home and, but then but then the next night, <laughs> up for it, it was just like yeah. the next night I couldn't, you know, and it was just like, how, like, why can't I, oh, why can't I do this? It was just like, it was a frustrating thing. And that voice that was like the voice of like guilt, was there also the voice on the two night beer, which was like, oh yeah, you got this. Yeah. Like yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, like, yeah. oh yeah, no, nothing needs to change. Like you got this. Like, like yeah. I'm proud of your, yourself. Like I only had two beers, like yeah. kind of proud of yourself. Oh yeah, like after a night that I would actually like have a couple beers and go home, like you know, at a, at a decent time, like I wake up and I'm just like, yes, like I did it, you know, like <laughs> all I have to do is just keep doing that, like in my head, like it seems so easy, you know, but it's just like, and that's the thing about alcoholism, like once you have that, you know, that first drink, it's like you don't, you can't control it, you know, it's, out, you, of, it's out of your hands. Do you remember your first drink? Yeah, I was, uh, so it was like after my injury and yeah, we were hanging out with some high school friends. It was, it was in high school. Um, it was like right before college and yeah, I just remember like, I just loved the feeling like of, of drinking. Like it just, you know, cause I was a little bit of an introvert, um, in high school. And so like drinking just kind of made me feel like I could just be this like wild and crazy guy, like, and you know, and that, and that's, and I just love that, that aspect of it. So, like without effort, like it wasn't yeah. weird. It wasn't awkward. You could kind of be this other. I could be social. I wasn't like a super social person in high school. So I was like social going to parties. Like I just, I love the lifestyle at the beginning for sure. When you had that injury that took you out of basketball, which really like crushed a dream. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there was some unresolved, like there was some unresolved, um, I guess for the lack of a better word, I've got, I guess emotions. the only thing that's coming to me, yeah, emotions is good. I was going to say issues, but I don't really like that word, but mm -hmm. kind of some unresolved energy or emotions around that. that yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell us more about that, about that injury. And yeah, I think, um, so the interesting thing about like my basketball career was like, I, so since I, I grew up as a swimmer and I started playing basketball a little bit late, like I started in junior high. And so I was kind of a late bloomer. And so it took me a lot of like, uh, it took me a lot of effort to try to like get up to speed with everyone, you know, all, 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 my, all my peers. So my, I got cut my seventh grade, my eighth grade, and then freshman year. And then, and every single year I kept working on my game, like every summer I was like, cause I just love basketball, you know? I wanted to be Michael Jordan, <laughs> and, <laughs> the white Michael Jordan. And um, so, yeah, and so I kept working on my game. And then sophomore year, I made JV, um, but didn't really play that much. And then junior year, I made varsity, but didn't really play that much. And then my senior year, I was a starter on varsity. So I went from like being cut to like being the starter on varsity. 
which was just like, and I was dunking too, like, which was insane. And I was just, cause I just worked so hard every single summer. And so there was just like, there's so much momentum that went into like basketball for me. You know, it was just like my whole life. Like you should have seen like my room, like in high school, like it was like wall to wall pictures of like basketball and Michael Jordan and, you know, my Nerf hoop and all that stuff. So it was just like, it was my world. And and so like, and I, and I was so focused and wanted to just keep it going. Like, I didn't care what college I, that would take me, like junior college or whatever. I wanted to play college basketball. That's all I wanted to do. And I think you're right. Like, I think when that injury happened, like it just, it just crushed me so much more than I think I realized. And so it probably left a little like empty hole, you know? Yeah. And so it, yeah. Yeah. yeah I can, I can, I know. Okay. Absolutely relate to this and and we're we're so young in high school and I don't I feel like we don't have well we don't have the tools mm-hmm. to work through that stuff and when when all that hard work you're putting in and putting in it and then this dream is taken away from you we don't have we can't process it in the moment at least in my experience because I was I was very similar I had an injury my junior year going into my junior year so I my whole junior year was wiped out nothing you know knee injury in the bed for over the summer in an immobilizer like it's not like it is now where people are out out and about and then coming back for senior year was kind of like okay with with a brace um and i don't think i was able to actually process it until 2014 so what we're talking 20 something years later wow. when it all came up and it's like okay i understand this now mm-hmm. like my attachment to it the the feeling of being unworthy the feeling of letting the team down the coach down my mm-hmm. parents um have you been able to reflect on that experience and kind of process it a little bit and, and work through it or do you feel do you still feel like you lost your shot yeah i don't know if i really processed it you know like it was just like it was just something that really sucked at the time and I was really bummed out. And then it was just kind of like, okay, what now, you know? And I don't, and it's, it's funny that you, that you say that. Cause like, I don't think I really, yeah, maybe I don't, I don't, I don't know if I really truly processed it. And then maybe, you know, and the drinking and everything was something that was like a way to cope with that, like, you know, mild depression or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't drink in high school either. Yeah. College. These stories are very College, it was like game on. Like, Mm -hmm. let's get this going. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I just just find that it's. BJ, this is an intervention, actually. (laughs) 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 But I think to, to that point of being so young, I don't think. Oh, man, I wish we had a support system to help us like mm-hmm. work through this stuff because you're 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 using the tools that you have, and we're taught to stuff our emotions, especially guys. Like, yeah, I mean, I cried because I couldn't play, um, drank in college <laughs> probably because I couldn't play, and <laughs> and it wasn't until a major injury that took me uh, took me out of it, another injury. Um, but I feel like. In those in those younger years, when we're so attached to um, this belief that we're better, right? Um, we are better, and there's so many things around us that say, mm, "You know how long this road is? Do you know how tough it is to get there? Mm-hmm. Do you know how many obstacles are going to be in your way?" And we tend to 
to shy and turn another way. And then maybe the outlet is triathlon or um, golf or swimming or whatever um, that is. But I feel like there's a struggle in there. Mm-hmm. And eventually, if you haven't, you know, if it hasn't bubbled up to the surface yet, I don't know if it has, um, but it's going to give you perspective and growth opportunities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to take with you. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and letting go of that dream because, you know, mm-hmm. I still wasn't, it was like, I can still play hoops. You know, I can still go hang with those guys yeah, and, yeah. And, and stroke the J and, yep. and, uh, <laughs> the pump fake. And, but, but yeah, I, I guess my question is, um, do you think that had a big impact on your alcoholism and yeah, I don't, I really can't say it. It's hard to say. Yeah. Um, just because like it was just kind of circumstances, you know, like college basketball didn't happen. Like then I enrolled at uh, the university of Arizona and you know, the fraternity thing was just like the cool thing to do, you know? So did you and not even look for a basketball opportunity? Like even I play so, intramural or anything like that? Uh, oh yeah. I played like a little bit, but yeah. the thing about the injury was, is like, even though I rehabbed it and everything, like it still gave out. And so it never really got back to a hundred percent. So, so yeah. So like, honestly from the injury, which was like in 99 until like when I started triathlon in 2009, like there was like almost minimal exercise. <laughs> like I did barely anything like exercise wise during that 10 year period. Well, yeah. can you share what the injury was? Um, so yeah, I, I hyperextended my knee. So like basically what happened was I was going up for a layup. I got bumped in the air. My knee was straight when I landed and my knee went backwards. Mm. So I tore my meniscus and like cartilage. So I had arthroscopic surgery. Yeah. Oof. That's yeah. a lot of trauma in the body. Oh yeah. And that's really, you know, you went into college, there were no activity, um, in college, I'm thinking that the drinking was like totally acceptable and, you know, you weren't the only one. As you graduated from college and you were still having these kind of wild nights, did anybody ever express a concern to you? Uh, I don't, no, I don't think anyone, I mean, there were some concerns like in, in college um, uh, because I was I was going pretty uh, pretty crazy in college, but like, I think after I don't, I don't really remember any, cause I think I, I did a good job of just hiding it, you know, like it Ooh, wasn't hiding. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was hiding it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot to carry. Where did you have, um, did you have rules? Like I'm, you know, don't drink before five. Did you have rules about drinking? No. Well, my only, I just wanted to, my only rule is just to, to make it to work, you know, and, and, and I mean, sometimes I didn't do that. I, I would call in sick, you know, when I was just too hungover or, or whatever. Um, you know, there was there was actually a lot of weekends where I would go out on a Friday night and then end up Sunday night, like at a bar and hadn't slept like all weekend. I'd just been partying like all weekend, no sleep. And then the sun's going down and I'm like, oh crap, like tomorrow's Monday. I got to work tomorrow. And then showing up to work, just feeling like a truck hit me, you know? And then like, people are like, oh, how was your weekend? And you know, just like making up stuff. Cause like, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know what I did, <laughs> you know? It was crazy. Whoa, yeah. Yeah. Um, and how's your nutrition at this, at this point? Um, so yeah, so most of my, yeah, most of my twenties, like I was working, so I was working in, uh, in the mall for a while. So I 
was doing, like I was eating a lot of fast food. You know, there was like McDonald's there, Carl's Jr. Like I was just eating fast food basically all the time. And, and so, and then also having a desk job, like not really moving around, not exercising, like that's how like, you know, the weight gain really came. So, yeah, I mean, it just, and that, that sort of food is going to create like, um, kind of a vibration about you that's not healthy and, you know, drinking and partying the way that you were. I mean, it just makes sense that your nutrition is just not on point whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, that day that you, that five mile walk that you walked home, what happened after that? Like, did you, oh, you called your friend? Well, actually, so I called my friend about a week after, but like, so after that happened, I was just like, okay, I need to, I got to figure this out. I'm not drinking anymore. Like I knew that for sure, but I need, I was trying to figure out how I was going to do it, you know? And I was thinking like, oh, I could probably just do this on my own. Um, and it was interesting. I actually like started writing just in this journal, which I never, I never do. And I was just like writing all my frustrations, like with drinking over the years. And it's interesting. And I was just reading this the other day. There was a point where I wrote like, like, this is a serious problem. You need to get help. Like, you can't do this on your own. Like, you need to get help. And, you know, I don't know if that is probably God coming through the pen there and like writing that to me. But so right when I wrote that, I was like, okay, I know what to do. Like my buddy that I went to college with, he's been sober for 10 years. I call him up and I tell, you know, told him what happened. And so he's like, it was on a Tuesday night. And he's like, all right, come meet me. Like, let's go to dinner. And then we're going to go hit this meeting. I was like, all right, cool. So then went to dinner, you know, we chatted. And then we went to this AA meeting. It's an all men's meeting on Tuesday nights in um, CDM. And there's like 80 guys there. It's like this huge meeting. And he's like, oh, and by the way, like, they're probably going to call you up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like freaking out, you know? Because you can't have a drink to kind of make you feel like more like an extrovert. (laughs) So I'm like, you know, they call me up. I'm like sharing in front of like 80 guys. What's that like? What's that first moment like? Like standing up sober in front of all these guys. Call myself an alcoholic for the first time. It was, it was scary, you know? Was there a sense of relief, a tiny bit of relief at all? I don't know. I just felt so uncomfortable. Yeah. I felt really uncomfortable. And I just, and also like, you know, the the little voice in my head is trying to tell me like, oh, you don't have to be here. You know, like you don't have a problem. Like <laughs> these guys have problems. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Exactly. Yeah. But so, but I just, I just knew that like, I just knew I wanted to be sober and I knew like I've seen all, you know, all these guys that, that were there had done it through this program. So I just said, um, I surrendered, you know, like I just said, Hey, like, let's, let's see how, let's see how this works. And my buddy's like, you got to get a sponsor that, um, this guy, John walked up, he was getting like four years at the time. He's like, that's going to be your sponsor. You know, got his number right after the meeting and started working with him. Most amazing sponsor ever. Um, and, and so after that, it was just like, you know, going to that meeting every week, finding other meetings and just like working the steps and then just like watching my life just get like better and better. Yeah. It was crazy. How's your life getting better and better? Um, it's just like, you know, not just like, you know, just feeling good every day, like physically, but like the whole spiritual aspect of AA has been like such a eye opening thing for me, you know, like 
I kind of cut off that whole part, you know, of my life for a really long time, um, which is an easy thing to do when you're consuming a lot of, <laughs> mm-hmm. a lot of alcohol. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the whole spiritual aspect is, has been amazing. And then also just, um, you know, doing things that I never thought I could do, you know, before, like getting, getting into activism and stuff like that. So yeah, it's just been amazing. But I do, uh, yeah, I do know that it's, it's a very spiritual foundation, which mm-hmm. I think is amazing. And when we are uh, using alcohol in our life to whatever degree, mm-hmm. it's, it, it dulls our ability to really be in communion with that higher intelligence and that higher mind. Yeah. And so um, having that out of your life you know, that feeling good could also be called like clarity. You know, you mm-hmm. get this clarity and you don't have these intoxicants in your body anymore. Um, yeah, it's really, it's really powerful. And this is, this is like new. I mean, we're talking September 1st, 2019 was, yeah. was what was that day? Was that the day that you walked home for five miles or the day that you had? That was the day I walked home, yeah. That was the day yeah. you walked home. Well, yep. happy over a year anniversary. Thank you. Thanks. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, the year has kind of gone, gone by pretty fast. What kind of um, like coping mechanisms, like, because alcohol is a great coping mechanism, right? You can feel great. It dulls your senses, like kind of makes problems go away. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, what kind of things that have you had to develop to? Because I'm assuming over the last year and a you know a few weeks here that maybe you've had like an intense experience or a shitty day, mm-hmm. and so how does that look different now when there isn't the drink? Well, yeah, it's like now you can actually like process your feelings <laughs> instead <laughs> of just run away from them, which is yeah, it's it's different, you know, and it was kind of scary at first, but it's like yeah, and I think a, a big uh, big part too is just, you know, with the whole AA, you know, like going to meetings and actually like getting the, these things off your chest and sharing, you know, is, is so huge. And, and, and just being around other people and that have gone through struggles like, like that you have too, there's just like such a good community there. Um, and so it's, it's, it's super powerful. Do you find, I mean, I said it in the introduction, so I'm going to ask you if it's true for you. Do you find, you know, being at these meetings and sharing and things like that, which I'm assuming is a major um, way that you are coping with this, you know, this life that we're all, that this journey of life that we're all experiencing, um, that we are more similar than different? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's, and that's one thing that they say too in AA, like, listen to the similarities, not the differences. And so like when I was 22, I actually got a DUI and I was, uh, had a court order to, you know, do AA. And I remember, you know, at the time, and I just sat there and just listened to the differences, you know, I was just listening to people's stories like, oh, like I'm not as messed up as that guy, you know? And it's just like the ego, ego just kind of takes over and it's just like, you know, telling you that you're okay. And, and these guys are messed up and, but you know, I was 22 and very young, and so and you were mandated to go there as and opposed I was forced to, to exactly, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. what do you have to say about um, change, like changing under mandate, mm-hmm. as opposed to changing because you're ready and you're willing? Yeah, I think you have to be ready. Yeah, I mean, everyone, everyone has their own journey of how they how they get there. But you know, however you get there, it's you just you just get to a moment where, like, you just want 
you just want to have a better life, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just like, there's only one, one answer <laughs> and you know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, take, it takes a while to say like, okay, I'm ready to, mm -hmm. you know, to hear that answer and to live that answer and to act in accordance with that answer. Mm -hmm. um, so congratulations. I mean, that's just, it is a, a beautiful way to live is to live in clarity and to live in well-being and to live in community, you know, and in a place where we're vulnerable and we've got an environment that, um, that allows us, supports us on, on the path. But prior to this, you turned to a vegan diet. I did, yes. Yeah, so yeah. let's let's talk about that. Unless, BJ, did you have anything else you wanted to ask? Let's dive into veganism. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, do let's dive into that. And I'm specifically using the word vegan because you are an animal activist, yep. and so I'm feeling this, this is very uh, much a big part of your heart. Uh, yep. But tell us your journey to being plant-based from from the you know the McDonald's window diet, <laughs> yeah, like the, the drive-through diet yeah, to exactly. the plant-based diet. Which is diet. addictive food, really addictive food. Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so it was, so 2013, I was training for my third Ironman. I was doing Ironman Arizona and I was, you know, I was doing like a, a lot of volume. And so I was obviously like I was eating more calories and I just started to like, no, just, I started to just like look at my diet a little bit more and I just noticed like, wow, like my diet is like super meat heavy, you know? And and I was just like, I just don't know if this is like the healthiest thing for me to be eating. And uh, at the time I had had bought uh, Rich Roll's book, Finding Ultra, because I was like really interested in in doing Ultraman. I, I'd wanted to do that race. And so that's why I bought the book. And that book like totally like blew my mind because, you know, he talked about going plant-based and like getting a lot of energy. And then all of a sudden he's doing Ultraman and like, that book blew my mind because up until that point, you know, just like everyone else, like thought I needed meat for protein and, you know, cow's milk for calcium and like, and I just never thought that you could be healthy, like without those things, especially not being an athlete. And then just see this guy who's doing like ultra distance, you know, triathlons, like on a plant-based diet, I was like super intrigued, you know? So I started like looking into it more and I was like, all right, I'm just going to go. Cause I'm like, I'm like an all or nothing kind of guy. So mm. I was like, I'm just going to go full in. I'm going to just try this for two weeks and see what happens. And yeah, I tried it for two weeks. And after two weeks, I was just like feeling so much better. And I was like recovering faster from workouts and you know, all the benefits that, that come with that, the plant-based diet. And then shortly after I watched um, the documentary Earthlings and oh, yeah, that's <laughs> oh, I don't yeah. think I've made it through. Well, it's funny. Like once you start Googling vegan, you know, and then like all this other stuff comes up, um, you know, I was looking for recipes and then like I found that documentary. And so, and I probably was more open to watching it because I was like, you know, I was eating, you know, plant-based or whatever at the time. And so, yeah, I watched that documentary and I was just like, F this, you know, like, these industries like have to stop. Like, and I, you know, you just have, you just don't really, you don't really realize how, how bad things are. Cause you just see the, you know, the package at the end of the day. And when you actually peel back the curtain and you see what's going on in these industries, it's just like, it was super eye opening. So at that point, you know, obviously I became uh, vegan, you know, for the ethical, ethical reasons, you know? So like I started like 
you know, with the health side and then kind of got into it like from the ethical side. Did you feel um, when you were making that transition, you know, you going into those two weeks, did you feel any sense of loss? Like, where do I, like, how do I even start doing this? Like Ritual's book gives you some, yeah, gives you some uh, starter fuel. But, yeah, yeah. but how did you, how did you carry that through? Like, okay, two weeks, here we go. Like, uh, so what I did was um, I started watching a lot of YouTube videos. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with Durian Rider. Yeah, but oh, I was yeah. watching. I was watching Durian. Yeah, I was watching Durian Rider, and you know he's slamming down like <laughs> ten banana smoothies and just like, and like I just he was doing a lot of like what I eat in a day videos, and he was like an ultra cyclist, so like you know he was eating a lot of calories, and so I was just like watching that and just like watching all these other like what I eat in a day videos. And so that's how I figured out how to do it. And so that's kind of like, that kind of helped me along. Like, was that all or nothing? Because he, you know, he's kind of like an all or nothing guy. Like, yeah. How many bananas and 50 bananas a day yeah, yeah. or something like that? <laughs> do you, you felt drawn to that? Did you have days or did you have days where you were just eating bunches of like oranges or bananas? Um, or, well, or I, you vari- I don't know. Variety? Like the first two weeks, I mean, I felt better, but then I also was like a little voice in my head. I'm like, oh my God, like, am I going to die? <laughs> you know? <laughs> But like, you know, then you start reading the science and you realize like it's, it's totally healthy. Um, but yeah, I did try like the whole fruitarian raw thing for like a week or whatever. And that didn't, it works for some people, but yeah, it didn't, it wasn't good for me. I have a question about reading Rich's book, um, because mm-hmm. Rich also is somebody who's living sober Yeah, and, um, did that, I mean, and he was, you know, um, entertainment lawyer and, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, having a good job and, and, um, had a DUI. Was any of that hitting you hard too? Yeah. Or was there a part that was like, I, I can only, I'm just going to go with the vegan thing. Like I can't look at this too. Um, yeah. I mean, that definitely intrigued me because like, I, I could definitely relate to a lot of the, the alcohol struggles that, that he had. Um, and I think like, I always like in the back of my mind, I just knew like I was going to be sober at some point. Like I just knew that's what I, I wanted and it was going to be the best thing for me. Um, I think just what, what held me back was like, I don't know, like I just, I just didn't want to be, I just, I, I just wanted to be like normal, you know, like I wanted to be the normal guy that could like go out and just like have a couple of drinks. And that's, and so I think that's what kept me like coming back and being like, okay, let's try this again. You know, I have to say though, I feel like that, that normalness, Mm -hmm. I think that's actually more rare than we think. Yeah. I really do. Like Mm -hmm. I, I'm very um, policed with the alcohol that I take in because like if I, if I drink too, like I do go to a blackout stage. Mm -hmm. Like I, it's like, I, it's weird. It's like, it's like your mind gets erased and you forget like the values and how you want to feel. And so Mm -hmm. I'm very policed with that. It's it's Mm -hmm. not, and and come from, I also come from a long line of Irish alcoholics. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, I had an aunt that drank her, like literally drank herself to death. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's so, in, it's always so interesting to hear these stories and yeah, mm-hmm. it's just not something that, um, that I, that I love very much. Um, and then at the same time, love very much, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, that beer tastes so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so Earthlings, it's a really intense movie. How would you explain that to people who haven't seen that movie? Um, it's pretty intense. And it just it just shows exactly what happens in the meat, dairy, and egg industry, and then also other industries that um, exploit animals like leather and entertainment, like zoos and stuff like that. 
Um, and it's just, it just uncovers exactly what, what happens, um, to, to these poor little animals, you know, and, you know, and I, and I've spent, I've spent time at, at sanctuaries and everything. And it's just like, you know, when you spend time with these, and I think that's the problem is like, as a society, we're just so disconnected from animals. Like we have dogs at home. A lot of people say they're animal lovers and they love their dog and everything, but then they're eating these other animals. And, and I think it's just because we're so, we're so disconnected and we're, and we're so conditioned as a society, like that, this is just like a normal thing. And so you look like a weirdo if you're not doing the normal thing or whatever. And so, but I think 99% of the world would say that they're against, against animal abuse. Right. And, and I think, and, and that's, what's so powerful about doing activism with anonymous for the voiceless is because we actually bring that footage and it's footage from dominion, which is like a newer version of like earthlings, but like we bring that footage to the public and then have conversations with people about it. And it's like, it's crazy. Like a lot of people have never seen stuff like that. I mean, some people have seen stuff on Facebook or whatever, but to actually like, you know, it's one thing to tell someone, but to actually show that footage to somebody like their guards down and they, you see them connecting with like the images on the screen. And then they realize like, okay, this is what I'm paying for, you know? And, and that's when it's, and that's when being vegan becomes easy is when you focus on the victims. I mean, I believe, I know, I don't believe, I believe and I know that we are loving beings, we are compassionate beings, and it, the system is very much set up so we don't see it. Because if we saw it, then, then we wouldn't do it anymore. And that's all it took for me was to see, you know, a calf being thrown into a, a wheelbarrow and taken away from a mother cow and hear her crying and seeing the other mother cows come around her to console her. Oh, I mean, that was all I needed to see. I mean, there, and I could tell other little stories, but those little clips are in my mind and they will never go away. And so mm -hmm. like you, we became vegan for fitness, plant-based, mm -hmm. and then quickly it becomes mm -hmm. about the animals. And I'm a dog lover. I'm an animal lover. We've had dogs our whole life. Um, I used to go to the zoo as a kid. I love seeing the animals. I had no idea. And to, in the cognitive dissonance that occurs with, like, I would never harm Clark, let alone slaughter him in, mm -hmm. in, a, in a way where his meat would remain nice and bloody and fresh. Mm -hmm. And then I would never do that. So why would I do that to another animal? And I didn't know. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really, it's really set up. Uh, I'm thinking about when BJ and I were living on the road, we had the privilege of seeing um, Will, Dr. Will Tuttle, and I'm looking over your head because I'm looking at his book, The World Peace Diet, which is such an amazing book. And basically the premise of it is until we stop contributing to the violence, right, which and eating the violence and consuming the violence, we're going to have a violent world. It makes yep. so much sense. Totally. And so we heard him speak, remember that, babe, mm -hmm. in uh, Ithaca, New York, and he talks about the moment that you wake up, like the moment you realize like, oh my God, like I would never eat my dog. I would never eat my cat. Like, what am I doing? Like, this is crazy. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. And he was like, it's okay. We all did it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. We all did it because we were we thought it was normal. It was normal. Mm-hmm. Our society does it. We were told mm-hmm. to finish our food on our plate. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Like you don't need to be angry at yourself. You don't need to punish yourself. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Like we all did it. Yeah, exactly. And now we don't have to do it anymore. And isn't yep. that amazing? It's great. <laughs> it's so, I feel so blessed. Yeah. Um, I was, I've been reading this version of the, I've been studying the Bhagavad Gita for close to mm. 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing a deep dive study with my teacher since the beginning of COVID. So it's like, you know, a decade of studying it. Now I'm ready for the deep dive. <laughs> and I got a new version of it, which is um, the Bhagavad Gita as it is. And the translation is from Swami Prabhupada. And, oh, it's, it is as it is. It is hardcore, but it talks about, there's a whole section about eating animals. Mm-hmm. And it states, I'll just give one statement that it says that eating animals is the highest state of ignorance. And that sounds so harsh, but it's so true because mm-hmm. when I was eating animals, I was in a total state of ignorance. Mm-hmm. But once I wasn't in that ignorance, I stopped. Mm-hmm. It was so easy. Like you said, vegan becomes easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really, yeah, it's powerful. Yeah, it's really, I'll, I'll let you, I'll show you that section. Yeah. It's, it's really intense. It's yeah. really intense. It, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's intense. We <laughs> anyway, we want to we want to stay in the mode of goodness. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Um, so tell us about Anonymous for the Voiceless. What is this organization? How did you find them? Yeah. So uh, yeah, they've been um, they started in Australia and then they've kind of grown. I think there's close to like a thousand chapters now, like all around the world. And um, and there's one in, in Newport Beach and Huntington and a bunch of different places like where, where I live. And uh, so the way it's structured is basically like there'll be, you know, four activists um, standing in, in a cube shaped form and they're wearing like anonymous masks, which, you know, kind of brings attention, you know, from people to kind of, you know, see what's going on. And then we're holding like, you know, large screens of, you know, and each screen will have something different. Like one screen will be, you know, pig footage, another screen will be like egg footage, dairy, you know, and so on. And then, and then the rest of the activists are kind of like spread out, um, you know, sort of like uh, around the perimeter. And then as bystanders come and walk by and start like looking at the screens and it looks like they're kind of interested, then we like approach uh, people and then have conversations about what they're watching and what they're ultimately contributing to. And then just getting them to like connect with like their, basically their core values, you know, cause like, that's really what it comes down to. It's like, you know, if you don't have the why <laughs> to be vegan, like you're not, you're not going to stick with it, you know? And so like, it's basically just kind of having conversations, connecting people, um, to the why, and then giving them information, you know, some more information on a bunch of different documentaries that they can watch, watch on their own. So it's, it's super powerful. I've had some, so many amazing conversations with people. I feel like that's, you're so incredibly like courageous and, and brave to continue to kind of put yourself in front of that footage, which most people would we'd be like, okay, like, I, I mean, know. I'll speak I for myself. Like <laughs> yeah. once is enough. Cause I cannot <laughs> remove those images. They were so incredibly powerful. Just things that I've seen over the years. How, where do you do that? 
Like, where is it? Is it just different places? Is it yeah, outside of supermarkets? Is it? Uh, yeah, they, it's just different in, in every city. Um, so, yeah, if, if anyone's interested in checking it out, like if you just search uh, Anonymous for the Voiceless, go to the, the website and then look in, in different areas. They're, they're popping up everywhere. So, What would be something that you would like people to, um, to kind of know about uh, – the animal agriculture industry, maybe something that they're that's being hidden from them, or I think the biggest thing would really be um, would be dairy and eggs. You know, because a lot of there, there's a lot of vegetarians out there that are quote unquote ethical vegetarians, but they don't really understand what happens in the in the dairy and the egg industries. And and really, like when it comes to cruelty, those those industries are probably even worse. Um, you know, because their children are taken away from them. It, all the boys in those industries, like all the males in the dairy industry and in the egg industry, they're killed right when they're right when they're born because they're not. They're basically byproducts. Like they don't. It's it's all. They're just products to the to the industries. And so, um, I think that's probably uh, the biggest thing that people just don't realize is because you just see like, oh, it's just milk, it's just eggs or whatever. They don't see that all these animals, like once their production starts to dwindle, they're killed right away. So it's just, I mean, it's just the exploitation. And, and also like a lot of things, a big thing that people don't realize is, um, uh, the, the forced impregnation of these animals too, you know? So it's like, we're not, they're not just sitting around waiting for these animals to like do it, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like they're forcibly impregnating these animals, which is, it's disgusting. It's, it's terrible. So, um, so yeah, I think like dairy and eggs is probably the biggest thing that people don't realize, like how, how, how terrible those industries are. Yeah. I, I used to, I was a cheese addict Mm -hmm. and I didn't know, and it's okay. It's okay. I was ignorant. Like it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's, but the moment that the, and the beautiful thing is like the moment you wake up, like the moment you see, you can't unsee, which is such a gift. Yeah. And I think that um, when we do see, it allows us to live in alignment with who we truly are, which is really loving, compassionate beings. Mm-hmm. And you and and you can be a loving. Com- you're, everybody is a loving, compassionate being. Everyone, yeah. I believe, everybody is. Um, but it's just what are we awake to, and we may be doing things because we're we're ignorant to the truth because we live in a society that very much keeps us. From it, so mm-hmm. always look for the truth. Always look, look for the truth. Yep. Yeah. How do you? How do you, as a as as an activist and somebody who's all or nothing? <laughs> how do you? How do you work with someone who plants? The, you plant the seed in there, like making their way. Like, mm-hmm. how do you navigate that? Yeah, it's it's really all uh, the conversations that we have. It's just really just like holding people accountable. Mm. You know, so it's like. Asking them like, "Are you against this?" And it's, I've I've never seen anyone that says, "No, this is great." You know, <laughs> like every single person says, "Yeah, this is terrible." And then and then you basically say, "Okay, like, what do you think you could do about it?" You know, and like asking them and like having them come to the solution, and and it's really like what they can do about it is to stop paying for it. Like it's all having them just understand that it's like, it's all supply and demand. And like a a lot of people kind of backpedal and say, oh, maybe I'll just eat a little bit less, you know, like I'll do a little bit less. And what we have to keep bringing them back to is like, 
hey, like it's supply and demand. Every single time you buy those products, you are creating the demand. And so as long as we're creating demand, animals are going to continue to get tortured and killed in your name. And then also just something to keep in mind is like, you know, we I see this as an injustice. And like, would we would that person take that same stance on like any other injustice? You know, it's like, oh, like I know racist, racism is wrong, but like I'm just going to be a little less, little less racist. Like, no, like, you know, racism is wrong. You stop it. So it's just like kind of like getting people mm-hmm. to that point, basically. Yeah, I think that's it's I think there's this serves a, a, a tremendous um, uh, f- I'm thinking fireworks like this. This really is in their face. Like this mm-hmm. is your chance to. Yeah. Now that you've seen it, you can literally go home, into your home and clear things out and, and start fresh. Yeah. And, and also like what side of history do you want to stand on? Like now that you have this information, do you want to be someone that stands up for what they believe in? Cause you know, this is wrong. Or like, do you want to be someone that just, you know, you know, it's wrong, but you're just going to keep doing it because the rest of society is doing it. Yeah. So it's super powerful. Like you have the ability to make change, you know, and it's, yeah. But, but that's so powerful too, because then you're, you're calling them on it. Like they can actually make a life, not just a shift in their diet or food choices, but now they're like, okay, what else am I being mm-hmm. turning a blind eye to? Yeah, totally. In my life, right? In my relationships at work, like yeah. You're planting that seed, which is mm-hmm. really profound. And yeah, and I don't know if people have come back to you after um, after you've done the the activists, like the actual physical part. But I don't know if people have come back to you. Have they called or, or, or engaged after, or is this kind of like a one time? We do it. So uh, the way our, the art chapter is set up was we would have them like usually like once a month Mm -hmm. and we would, we'd be down by like the Newport pier. So you would get like a lot of, I think it'd be like a lot of tourists that would come through there. So, and we'd talk to a lot of, you know, a a lot of people were from like Europe and traveling and stuff. So we didn't get, I I didn't really see a lot of like people coming back and coming back up and talking to us, but yeah. They heard enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, oh, those are those guys, Shonda. We got it, we got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but also it's like you don't really really need to see it twice for it to Mm. leave an impression. Totally, yeah. And then it's your choice to make change or not. Right. Um, And, uh, yeah, wow. I I thank you for the work that you're doing on behalf of these beautiful souls. because yeah, they don't, they have nervous systems. They right. don't want to die. Yeah. You know? And, and that's why they're called, we're called uh, anonymous for the voiceless. Cause you know, they do have a voice, you know, they scream and you know, when they're, we're in, when they're in these, uh, slaughterhouses, but you know, nobody's speaking up for them, you know, like they need, they need our voice to, to help them. So, yeah. yeah. And that's the, that's the, the beautiful piece is that they're calling you to service. Right. Right. It's like, look, right. So we look for, we look for the beauty, not right. Look for the similarities, not the difference. Like mm-hmm. where there's so much good that this is, this is what's happening. It's been happening in our world for a very long time. And there's a lot of good that we can uh, create because, because of that, all that darkness. Totally. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate everything you you've done. Um, so you're living without animal products and you're living without alcohol and drugs. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> how you doing it? Um, I know you're passionate about, um, what a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. Wait, he sounds oh, like we're a, having dinner after this party. is going to be super boring. <laughs> boring sober guy over here. <laughs> 
Um, I'm still fun, guys. I've <laughs> <laughs> been laughing the whole time. Um, and I know you're passionate about assisting people with, um, you know, with living a sober life. If they've if they've got that voice inside and they're just like, oh, I don't want to live like this anymore. And and um, you know, I think also like endurance sports, alcohol is very much hand in hand. I mean, definitely when Beej and I were younger, we've been in this sport for a while now, and we were in like our early 30s kind of we started in our early 30s and it was like work out hard and get and go as fast as you can so you can get to the bar and like if mm. I put down three beers by four I won't be hung over you know three beers for me is a lot yeah so it was like kind of calculating how I could like work out hard and then drink hard and you know yeah. <laughs> um, but somebody who has that voice what would be your uh, your words of guidance for them if they're like I don't want to live like this anymore I don't want to do this I don't want to hide it I don't want to make rules about when I can and cannot drink. Yeah. I mean, I would say look in the mirror, you know, and take a, take a good look in the mirror and, and, and see like, do you want to, do you want to keep doing what you're doing right now? Or do you want to make a change and have a better life? And if you want to make a change and have a better life, then the best thing to do is just reach out for help. You know, don't try to do it on your own. I mean, I'm sure there are some people that have been able to do that, (laughs) but I mean, if you want a foolproof plan to, to make sure that you, you know, can get out of the struggles that you have, like reach out for help. Yeah. Yeah. And we're loving, compassionate beings. You're going to get the help you need. Totally. Yeah, exactly. You're going to have the the unconditional love and support Mm -hmm. that you need. It's beautiful. So, um, well, what's next for you? Races are coming back online. You got anything on, uh, on the schedule or in your heart? Yeah. So I was supposed to do Santa Cruz 70.3 this last year. So it got pushed to, to next year. And so that's sort of like my main race uh, next year. And I'm not really like planning anything else like early in the year, just cause I, I don't know what's going to happen <laughs> with the pandemic. I feel like, you know, a race in September next year should be hopefully, good to go. So that's sort of the, the main thing. And then, um, I definitely want to get back, uh, to Ultraman. I'm, I'm kind of targeting 2014 or I'm sorry. Yeah. 2024. <laughs> Let me get my time yeah, machine. Yeah, time Hold machine. On. 2024. <laughs> you're you're vegan, but you're not yeah. sober yet. <laughs> I'm going to go. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to go back to my yeah, 2014 and talk to that guy. <laughs> yeah. 2024. So I, I wanted to have at least like five years in between yeah. uh, the last Ultraman. I mean, it was, it's, it's such an amazing race. It's, it's totally life-changing. Um, but it definitely like, it takes a lot of effort to, to train and then recover. So yeah. What kind of like, what, what does the training volume look like in a week? And your, your coach you had mentioned is Mary. Um, she's been on the podcast 8 million times. Mm We love her very much. She's a sister. Um, finding Kona for those of you who are like Mary, huh? Finding (laughs) Kona. Uh, she's, she's an amazing athlete, amazing coach. Yeah. What type of, uh, volume is she throwing down on you for prep for an ultra like that? Um, we were doing probably like averaging about 20, 20 hours a week. Um, and it's kind of similar to, to Ironman, but just like the big days are, are bigger. And so it was funny too. Cause like, I remember I had this like huge weekend of training and Mary's like, all right, Hayes in the barn, you know? And then the very next week, like I see a 170 mile ride on my <laughs> on my training plan. I was like, hold on a Wait second. A I thought the hay was in the barn. <laughs> <laughs> like the barn is burning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I loved I loved the training. The training was was uh, it was definitely definitely hard, but something that you had to just like 
I mean, I had to stay so on point with recovery, my diet, um, like everything, like just had to be super focused and, you know, getting enough sleep and, you know, managing a full-time job at the same time too. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, de it definitely took a lot, a lot of energy, but like just finishing that thing. And also like, what's cool about the event is like, you know, in triathlon, it's really just kind of sort of like an individual sport, but with Ultraman, you know, you have to have a crew out there and like, and it's a small race, you know, there's only like 25, uh, I think the max is like 40 people. We had 25 at our event. So it's like, you really kind of become a family and everyone's helping each other. And it's like, I mean, it, people are competitive, but everyone wants to see each other like do well. So it's just a cool, you know, cool triathlon to do. I saw BJ perk up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For a different reason. <laughs> Not there yet. You talked about uh, someone won't make the change unless they have or know their why. So what's your why for getting back out there for Ultraman? My why? Um, yeah, I just want to, I just want to prove that, you know, I, I can, you can do whatever you want in life, you know? And that was like, I think a big thing for doing Ultraman the first time was like, um, I think you learn so much about yourself in like these really long endurance events, you know, like you just learn that you're just like so much stronger than you realize, you know, especially like when you're going through like these really dark moments, like you just come out just the other end and, um, you realize how much of a, how much of a fighter, how, how much of a fighter you are. So it's just, it's, it's just amazing. <laughs> and, and going through the finish line is just like, I mean, I was, I was able to run, my, two of my sisters went out there, um, they they crewed for me and just running through the finish line with both of them. And we're just like crying at the finish line, like just going through the three days like that, like, you know, as a family, just getting closer and yeah, it was, it was pretty, super powerful. Mm, that's awesome. Maybe I'll do it before you, BJ. I, I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> I highly recommend. I'll support. I love it. I love it. Scott, thank you so much for being here. We're going to put links for people to follow you on Instagram and, of course, for Anonymous for the Voiceless. And we appreciate all the, um, the messaging that you're putting out into the world. Um, you know that anything is possible. We can get sober. We can get off drugs. We can get off meat. We can do it all. We can be clear. We can have a relationship with, uh, with our spiritual self. And... Um, you know, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And if we're not attending to that, we are, we're missing it. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Thank you guys so much for everything that you do. And thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm yeah. super grateful. 